So it's nice to be here in this lovely place that is your spiritual home. I'm going to talk tonight about speed, busyness, the quest for novelty, and the crazy lives we lead, (laughs) and what would be a Dharma perspective on all of that. And I'm going to weave into it. This book just came out uh, called Not Turning Away, The Practice of Engaged Buddhism. And it's an anthology from 25 years of the Turning Wheel magazine. And so it's it's a wonderful book. If anyone is interested, um, it's available at bookstores. And in here is a piece that I wrote also on the topic of speed. So I thought I'd just read a little bit as we go along. Okay, so, in, so I think I'll just start with it, actually. Which was, I, I'm very interested in the way our lives have gotten what feels like so completely out of control. The level, this busyness, this kind of constant doing and running about and rushing. And I was comparing it to when I used to live in Asia. And I spent quite a bit of time over there. And for, there for me, if I accomplished one thing in a day, I felt like I had success. So I'll just give you an example. Mailing a letter, a story in three acts. Act one, one o'clock p.m. I leave my house for the post office, pausing for a game of hopscotch with the little girls next door. Dinah, shouts my new neighbor. Wait, have some chai. You have to hear of my new plan. I've known him for three months, and every week he has a new money-making scheme. Last week it was a daycare center, the week before a shoe store. Today, we chat for 20 minutes over a cup of the too-sweet brown liquid. He tells me of his plan to turn his general store into a restaurant. Dinah, he says, you like pizza, ice cream. I'll serve the most excellent meal for Western tastes. We discuss the pros and cons and recipes for spaghetti sauce. Act 2, 2 o'clock p.m. I jump on my bike and pedal over to the post office. It's still closed for lunch. It's 2 o'clock. I wait for the man on lunch break whose job it is to unlock the postmaster's window. It doesn't matter that there are five other men standing around drinking chai, the code term for doing mostly nothing. The man with the key to the window isn't there, so I sit outside on the porch of the post office chatting with the postal workers, practicing sky gazing. I walk down the street to play with the beggar kids. I meditate. I return to see if the window's open, but alas, it's not. I scratch a few mosquito bites, buy the Times of India, and read of the latest mob violence. Act 3, 4 o'clock p.m. The man with the key returns. He was in a motorcycle accident, but wasn't hurt. The men assume their positions. One man can't find his postage meter. He searches under piles and piles of paper and finally finds it. One of the men, um, with the, the man with the key unlocks the window and one of the chai masters becomes the postmaster. My letter won't glue. They have to search for the glue. They put the glue on the thing. I stamp, I, they stamp the letter and finally I depart victorious. It's 5 o'clock p.m. and I have successfully mailed a letter before the post office closed. <laughs> I feel joy. When my father picked me up at the airport on my return from Asia, we drove up to a toll booth. He contemplated out loud. Well, if I go to the left, I should make it through faster. Well, unless that bastard tries to cut me off. Okay, yeah, we're going to take the left route. Dad, I sighed, I haven't been home in two years, and you're worried about shaving off 30 seconds of time. He said, Diana, you know I'm an efficiency expert. 
So I just wanted to contrast a little about this, this, this sort of funny America, contemporary America in this time that is so obsessed with productivity and doing and achieving and speed. And um, it's so funny because in so many ways our Dharma practice is kind of the opposite. This Dharma practice that's about doing, that's about resting, that's about, I mean, I'm sorry, Dharma practice is about not doing as opposed to everything else that's about doing. And, um, and that it feels at times that the busyness of our lives can, it, it, it's, it's not the conducive conditions for practicing in some level, but practicing can help temper the sort of busyness and craziness of many of our lives. And this is not to say that you can't find freedom amidst busyness because it is possible amidst the speed. But I think in general, it would serve probably most people to slow down. So it manifests personally in so much stress and so many physical and psychological problems that come from stress. And I mean, everybody I talk to is always saying, oh, I'm so stressed out, I'm so busy. I once actually did a practice for myself where I refused to tell anyone that I was busy. If someone said, can you do that? I wasn't allowed to say, I'm, I, no, I'm busy. Just because I wanted to see what would happen to my mind if I didn't identify myself as a busy person. And I actually found it really hard to do because I consider myself a busy person. I'm very important. I have important things to do. You know, that's sort of the mental state that goes along with it. We're at the mercy of such an incredible amount of information and coming at such rapid speeds and living in this time with the Internet and, um, you know, however many hundreds of television channels and all these choices and things and news. And I always ask, what did we do before email? What did we do? Sometimes it feels like things are speeding up, getting even faster. Multitasking, I've heard, was a word used for computers. And then it became um, a word used for humans. And then it became a word that was, we can't live without. We have to multitask. You have to drive and talk on your phone and, of course, with a headset. But, um, you know, thinking about listening to the radio or washing the dishes and talking on the phone or whatever it is, it's, it's this ongoing kind of doing many things simultaneously. And one of my friends who works for this very prestigious law firm, or did, when it was up for a review and they said to her that they were really concerned about her for performance because she wasn't multitasking. And she's a meditator. And she said, I thought it was a good thing to be practicing mindfulness, to be practicing being in the moment. But at the law firm, it was seen as a liability. So there's so many things we have to get done and so much, so much, so many things to accomplish and do. And sometimes I wonder if, you know, that one of the underlying ways of living in this culture at this time, especially, particularly with people in the spiritual world, is not necessarily about creating a lifestyle where their mind is open and spacious and relaxed and free. That may not be the goal right now. The goal may be to accomplish everything on your to-do list. And that's what it can feel like. So we look at this culture in which these minds arise and this culture of busyness, speed, 
they're, they, I heard that they're trying to, you know, on television they have a little bit of black time in between a show and a commercial, just a little bit, the television goes black. Well, they're trying to cut it out because they say that it's too disturbing for people because it's, it's too slow. And then I've heard about things like restaurants where you order by the minute. And um, I think that's a noodle restaurant, actually. And what I see is this vast embrace of technology faster and faster, thinking that one thing is going to solve all our problems, all these new technological advances, the speed, just the speed of the speed of the world and the way in which we live. It's like an uphill battle to subvert it in some way. I'd like to question who benefits from this speed. It's not the people with the you know, repetitive strain injury. Somebody's benefiting from productivity, from increased productivity. Probably the pharmaceutical companies are benefiting from the increased use of medication. So society, we see this separation happening, the alienation. I hear these stories about more and more towns being built without sidewalks. You know, because people, they don't want people, people are becoming less relational, more atomized, and just caught in this kind of vortex of speed. And then with it is coming greed, consumption, or that's probably not coming with it. It's probably been there for a long time, but it's all, um, it's all kind of part and parcel of one thing. Um, the movement away from the happiness inside ourself into something external that's going to sort of find, you know, provide the happiness. And I've always been struck by a story I heard that when when the development, the development agencies were heading to Thailand in the 60s and early 70s, they came up against something that was, turned out to be a huge difficulty for them, which was the people were content. So, you know, the word in Pali, sukha, and I think it's a similar word in Thai, and um, it was just considered a big part of the culture, contentment. There's no need to b- develop new this is and new that's and new, you know, we don't have to turn Bangkok into the industrial megalop- megapolis that it's become. But um, so what, what I've been told by Sulak Sivaraksa, who is a big Thai activist, and um, he said that they began to do a propaganda campa- campaign to get rid of contentment, to tell people that it's better to be wanting, that sukha, happiness, contentment, is not really the way you want to be. Things are good. Things are better, faster, more, better. So culture mirrors our mind, and our minds mirror the culture. Which came first? I don't know. I was asking myself as I was thinking about this as I was driving over here, is ADD or ADHD, is it a result of the culture or is the culture a result of minds like ADD? You know, the answer is probably both. So let's take a look at it from a dharmic perspective. Let's look at this wanting mind, the kind of mind that's always rushing into experience, into the the speedy quality. The Buddha talked about uh, bhava tanha, 
which is a word that means the craving for existence. So he said there were three kinds of cravings, the cravings for sensual pleasure, the craving for existence, and the craving for non-existence. The craving for existence, as I understand it, I've also heard translated as the desire to be and to have. And that it's one of the things that keeps us sort of locked into the cycle of suffering. We just keep going. We keep wanting to be, wanting to have more and more. But it's like wanting experience. You know, wanting the next thing to satisfy, to make the mind happy so the mind doesn't have to sit in a state of unhappiness whatever that means for it. I remember it, seeing it very, very clearly on a long retreat once where I was, my mind had gotten just very subtle and very precise. And I was looking out the window at the sunset and the sunset was extraordinarily beautiful. And I would look at the sunset and I would see beauty and I would notice this sense of pleasantness in coming up in my body and mind. And then I kept watching and I saw that my mind started to get bored. And so I'd close my eyes and I'd open it again and then I would see pleasant. It would feel pleasant and then it would get bored. And it was just like the mind was, it was never happy. It wasn't satisfied. It was always, even in this beautiful, beautiful sunset, always looking for the next experience. I felt like I was seeing that bhavha tanha right in front of my eyes. This fear of boredom and the desire for novelty is so strong in the culture. It's just, um, I work a lot with young people and I'll often ask kids or young teenagers, what do you think of boredom? And they always say, we hate boredom. We hate it. And it's kind of, I mean, I think most people really hate to be bored. And of course, to everything I'm saying, there will be exceptions. There are people whose lives aren't necessarily like this. But um, most people have a lot of fear of being bored or not doing too much. And that's why we have a whole culture built around you know, endless variety of things and, and stimulation. And there's just this great Buddhist quote that goes, mesmerized by the sheer variety of appearances, beings wander endlessly adrift in samsara's vicious cycle. You know, mesmerized by the sheer variety of appearances. We just get so sucked in and then being in that place of nothing happening or worse, boredom happening. It's just, it's, it's, for some of us, it's quite intolerable. And then out of this comes this endless seeking that in some cases can be quite destructive, like kids that get involved with increasingly more dangerous kinds of drugs, for instance because one provides a thrill and then the thrill is there and, that's, and it's, it's done and they need the next one to get the next thrill and the next thrill. And it's like the threshold level gets higher and higher. And I feel like as a culture, our threshold level keeps getting higher and higher. We can't tolerate that kind of, uh, all of the qualities we're trying to quali- 
de develop on this cushion are the qualities that as a culture and individuals within it have such a difficult time being with. So I think that meditation in this time is quite revolutionary. And I also don't think it's an accident that there's so many people interested in meditation in this time when this is the world we live in. When I look at my own life and I look at the way the speediness and the busyness manifests, I notice how I get caught in being speedy in my life. And actually, it was kind of ironic. I was getting ready to come here and then I, I had to go talk to my neighbor and I talked to my neighbor and I was lo losing track of time and I went, oh my God, I have to get down to Redwood City and I, I have to give a talk on speed. <laughs> and I rushed and, and, I, and then my, my printer broke. <laughs> it was so perfect. It was just like the absolute perfect moment. I'm going, what's wrong? And I'm jamming the thing open and trying to pull out the paper. And of course, you know how they say that machines sort of pick up on your energy. So <laughs> the more freaked out I was getting, the more it was jamming. And finally I said, you know, I have a written version of it. It's fine. I'll just take that. So, um, so I see it in my life. I see my own busyness as long as I've been meditating and trying to cultivate mindfulness in my life. I, I, I get caught. And um, one of my practices, one of the really clear things I try to work on is doing less and doing things slower. And it's not always easy. And sometimes that means things like really talking to myself, like when I'm watching the dishes and talking on the phone and saying, wait a minute, who is this serving? You know, okay, I'm getting a lot done, which is great, <laughs> but I'm also, I'm so out of the present moment. And it's like I have to keep reminding myself that this is my life. You know, this is it. If I spend it all, I don't know, there's so many ways I could be spending it not being present, I'm basically missing my life. So I often use a note, just a little phrase where I say, I am here, or this is my life, this is it. So when I'm caught with all the busyness, I just remind myself, okay, just coming back, coming back to the present moment. Sometimes the way this restlessness, this speediness works is that there's something going on underneath that we don't want to feel. And I try to be really vigilant about that when I go home, for instance, and I walk in the door and it's like, I have to check the mail. Okay, maybe I should check my email. Maybe I should do this. I've got to make this call. And I start walking really fast and running around and trying to, uh, trying to find, um, you know, just, just trying to sort of get something done and get the next thing done, get the next thing done. It's usually a good indication that I'm not feeling okay and that I don't want to feel that I'm not feeling okay. And so I've been able to stop and just take a, bre a breath and kind of feel into my experience. And there might be something like sadness underneath. It's very frequent. I've seen that. Or when you wake up in the middle of the night, when I wake up in the middle of the night with sort of restless thoughts, speedy thoughts going through the head, one thing I've learned is never believe anything you think in the middle of the night. <laughs> but... Um, 
a couple of weeks ago, I woke up in the middle of the night with all these thoughts, and I just said, Diana, this is a good sign that you're feeling bad about something. Okay, are you ready to feel the pain? No. <laughs> Come on, it's not going to be that bad. <laughs> okay. And just kind of closing my eyes and feeling into my body. Oh, there's some grief here. There's some sadness. Feeling the sadness, letting it come up. And then it kind of passed. And then the restless thoughts sort of passed. And then I went back to sleep. So we can really work with it, work with that energy of speediness. When our minds are restless when we're meditating, we know that the, the practice is about being with the restlessness. Can you sit with it? Can you, okay, the mind is restless, the thoughts are restless, the body feels like you're, you're sitting meditating, you just want to go running out of the room screaming. And a few, uh, many years ago, I remember when I was practicing, having intense energy going through my body, and I was, this was during a three-month retreat, and I was just, I just wanted to scream how, how kind of filled with energy I was. And it was late at night. It started about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't sleep. And so I thought, all right, maybe if I run laps, that will get rid of the energy. So I went outside, and I started running around the parking lot. And I started to get a little tired, but I still had all this energy. So I thought maybe I'll do a strenuous yoga poses. That'll help. So I stood, and I did very strenuous standing poses, you know, and... Um, Still, all this energy. So then I ran out into the woods, and then I thought I saw a mountain lion or something. <laughs> I don't think they have mountain lions where I was. But anyway, I, I kind of got really paranoid and ran back in. And at this point, it was about 6 o'clock in the morning, and there, were, there was a morning sit. So I went to that, and I was very, very upset. Um, I finally went into my teacher, and I said, I said, well, I've had all this horrible restless energy, and I've tried... I've tried running, and I've tried yoga, and I've tried taking walks, and it still won't go away. What should I do? And he said, well, did you think about sitting with it? And it had actually never occurred to me. Because that's kind of the way the mind operates. It sort of wants to run either with the energy or from the energy. You know, we get these sort of waves of energy, whether it's sitting on the cushion or outside, and we, have, we think it means something. And sometimes it does, but a lot of times it's just the energy of the body and mind. And can we learn to be with it? And we might also ask, since I've been making a lot of analogies with the culture, what would it mean to be with it as a culture? What would it mean to sit with it? I don't have the answer, but I want to pose the question because I think it's an interesting one. Boredom is so amazing when you're meditating. Boredom is this great flag. It's like a big mindfulness bell saying, you're not actually paying a lot of attention. When you're bored, it means the mind has lost interest. So how when you see the mind get bored, when you have that experience, can you begin to take a closer look at your experience? What does boredom feel like? What does the breath feel like? Can you get in closer with the breath, feeling the rising and falling, really getting to know it, and then sometimes it shifts and the mind doesn't feel so bored? 
I also think that boredom is a great, great precursor of creativity. I don't know if you, um, for those of you who have children, you know, kids always say, I'm bored, I'm bored. And I hear these stories about people taking their kids out to the woods. You know, they go on a camping trip and they don't have all their, they don't have TV and they don't have all the things that they normally use to occupy themselves. And the first day, they're incredibly bored. And boredom is painful. And then what usually happens is they sit with the boredom or they kind of sit around, they'd be bored, and then they start to discover things. And then the sticks and the trees and the rocks and the earth and the ground, everything becomes interesting. And it's like creativity arises. But we have to sit through that really hard part, which is the part that hates it, that it just feels so uncomfortable. Can we learn to sit with boredom without running away into a speediness? I think it's one of the... um, the things that push us into this fast-paced life. So just to to say a few ways of working with speed in your lives. First of all, realizing that it is actually really important, I think, anyway, that the pace of our lives is important. And it's a good question as a practitioner of Dharma. How do I want my life to be lived? How do I want to see my practice reflected in my life? I think these are important questions. I'm always curious about that phrase that we use when we say, I have to do it. I mean, some things we have to do. But oftentimes we think we have to do something, but we don't actually do it. And you know that there are times when you get sick and then you don't do the thing you said you absolutely have to do, and yet nothing bad happens. It's It's just noticing the state of mind that thinks it has to accomplish something, because that's often where we kind of get motivated and pushed into working at this speedy pace. Meditation itself is a, great, um, is a great antidote to the speed. Having a daily practice, again, it's kind of saying no to the busyness of the culture. Saying no in general to things is a great way to work with speediness, you know, with busyness, certainly. So when you say no, when you say, when someone asks you to do something, even if you really want to do it, but you know it's going to affect the quality of your life, making a decision to say no. One of my friends has a practice that I really think is amazing. She goes on nothing retreats, well, doing nothing retreats. She takes five days and she does absolutely nothing. And it's completely wild because she doesn't meditate. It's not about meditating. She doesn't take long walks. She doesn't read. She just sits there, does nothing. And I said, what do you do? (laughs) And then she says, well, I sleep a lot. And she says, but it was amazing for her to spend these days because she watched herself go into the fear that came up of nothing happening, nothing to do. And then 
she got through it because she just sat with the fear because she couldn't do anything. But she had to make sure she wasn't trying to sit with the fear because that would be doing something. But um, it's, it's this really interesting practice. What is doing and what is not doing? I mean, just exploring this in general. I do it sometimes. I would, that was way too advanced for me. But I, I decided that I would do, try to do at least a half an hour of non-doing practice every couple of days and I still try to keep this up and it's actually really amazing. And when I find myself wanting to get into that busy mind, that's the best time to do it. When I think I have so much to do and if I don't accomplish it, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be bad. And then I say, okay, non-doing practice. And I have to sit there and I just sit on my couch and I hate it. (laughs) But the mind settles. There's an initial hating of it, and then the mind kind of relaxes, and it's like, oh, you know what? It's actually not that bad. And then, sometimes, it's actually good. Because we need that rest. We need that, that peace. And I think what I'll just do is read this last little bit to end. Hang on. So I talk about, I I spent some time living in a monastery in Burma, and I talk about what I learned in terms of speed and time. In my year in the monastery in Burma, not much really happened, at least on the outside. For a year, I never got into a car or left the monastery's walls. I talked very occasionally to just a few people. I only ate what was put on the plate in front of me. I never went to a restaurant. I spoke on the phone five times in one year. Not once did I watch TV, see a movie, dance, go to a party, have sex, hang out with friends, sing, eat after noon, use hot water, or buy anything. I only wore one pair of shoes for the whole year, which, as my friends know, is a very big deal for me. When external activity is so stripped down, every little event becomes large in the mind. On retreat, I discovered that any time I did anything, there were results in my mind. When I ordained, it took my mind weeks to settle down from the thrill of it. When I nearly stepped on a toad, I was nervous for three hours afterwards. This is because my mind was so subtle from months and months of meditation. The tiniest action had an effect, like the time a butterfly landed up for a second on my toe and I sat transfixed with awe. In the silence, there was time for my mind to feel the repercussions of each event, to integrate, and to settle with it. I call this time reverberation time. Last night, I went on a sort of date. When I got home, my mind was so excited it couldn't stop spinning. So I crawled into the bath and let the reverberations happen as the hot water enveloped me. I let the rippling thinking run its course. I watched the chills and excitement and planning And then after an hour or so, the thoughts mostly subsided, so I went to bed. We need this time. Everything affects us all the time, of course, not just when we're meditating on retreat. But the speed of our culture and the pace of our lives doesn't allow for reverberation time. What happens when we don't give ourselves the silent space to sit and feel and move and gestate and integrate? What happens when we no longer have reverberation time?
So I'm being really slow now and inviting you to any questions, comments, thoughts about speed or anything I said. Is it on? Oh, no, I have to turn it on. I know that you work a lot with teens, and I have a uh, preteen who is going through an I'm bored stage at the moment. And she does do a little bit of practice. She's just starting to, to learn. Do you have any recommendations about what you say right after they say I'm bored? You can just keep it. Um, <sighs> it's really, it's really uh, pernicious, and it's like I always think of kids as kind of being the barometers of the culture because there's no, there's not a lot of the uh, filters, you know, that we have. And so when they say it's, it's like we all think that, oh God, it's so boring, or I'm so bored, and. I think that with teens, it's important to encourage them the possibility that one, that you might find boredom more interesting if you're willing to like be bored for a little bit of time. But usually that when I work with teens doing that, they usually tell me I'm crazy. <laughs> um, but I plant the seed, and I think it's about planting the seed of learning to inhabit whatever the experience is. And um, I'm sure that the idea of various things to do that may not be sort of watching TV or turning on the PlayStation or whatever it is are good options kind of in between boredom and um, like non-doing and doing things that just keep the mind occupied. Her anything to do. So that's my only, what I'm doing is just saying, oh, I hear you're bored. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know, yeah. then letting her come up with what it takes to get unboard. But is it those working? options are not, you know, television or that. Yes, actually, um, if I can handle the irritation and not let it get to me, then eventually, as you said, I usually find that the solution is very creative. Mm. If I haven't provided the solution, I could not come up with the solutions that she comes up with. Right, right. That's neat. Thanks. Um, there we go. After having sat a long retreat and getting to the point where um, I so wanted to get more subtle in my ability to see the breath or sensation or whatever that I'm no longer able to be bored because I remember, even though I don't necessarily have that kind of interest, I remember that if I just turn towards anything that's going on and investigate it, that it's practice and it's a moment of mindfulness and it serves me. So having been in that place where those really subtle differences are so interesting, that's kind of transferred into daily life in that way. That's fantastic. Wow, that's great. Okay, yay for the power of practice. <laughs> I want to go back to um, something you said earlier in the talk. You um, you said that that uh, that I'm bored is followed generally by uh, a spurt of creativity. 
And uh, I spent my entire uh, working life so far, I guess, working um, in the arts mm. and cultivating creativity as an activity. Mm. So these, one of the big problems I have sitting on the cushion is the what my mind wants to do is create things. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I've got I've got a house full of of thing creative things to do. So uh, the the very creativity becomes a problem for me, <laughs> and I want you to. Uh, yeah. that, is, do you have any words of wisdom on that one? No, it's a, it's a great it's a great question and um, something that I think a lot of people struggle with. And um, I mean, our minds we sit and we get so creative when we're meditating, particularly if we're the kind of person who's geared towards that and. Um, you know, gen the general thing that we say to people is that if when a lot of creativity comes up in the mind when you're meditating, the, it's sort of not the time and place for it. And can we ask it to sort of wait till after we're done? Or just if you kind of note, um, I mean, it depends on the daily practice. You have some, if you sit for a period of time, you're probably going to remember the creative thing if it's something, if it's something really important. But, um, but there's another piece that you're pointing to, which is I think that there's a difficulty that we often have with the mind just being with nothing happening. And it's not necessarily boredom. It's just like we're, we're so used to the sort of creative states or unpleasant states, but there's a state of, of kind of not much happening, and it's kind of learning to tune the mind to that state and go, okay, it's just nothing really happening, and not letting it jump into the creativity. It's, 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 a, it's a trick. It's, it's kind of a little bit of an art of learning to work with it, and I'm not sure if this is exactly addressing what you're saying, but... Um, one teacher I had referred to it as a kind of mental loneliness. Can we learn to be with that, that place of nothing happening? But anyway, in terms of the creativity, it's, it's a little bit of learning the, to discipline the mind, really, in a sense. Sorry if I can't. If I can't, I mean, maybe other people have a better, um, more helpful response. <laughs> Coming behind. Um. Just to maybe talk to that a little bit. I've been really consciously trying to slow down my life in about the last six months. I used to report to a CEO of a company, and he didn't have any children. One of the jokes about him was that he didn't have children because he probably would have made his wife have it in three months instead of nine. <laughs> so it was that kind of culture. But anyway, I, I play piano and mm -hmm. keyboards and whatnot. And one of the things I noticed is I've tried to slow down and grow my practice a little bit more in doing that, is that I play piano a whole lot less. And I used to have in my mind all the time that if I was doing something creative, if I was writing or playing the piano and stuff, that, that was cool use of my time. And it just dawned on me one day, and I'm, I'm not really playing as much as I used to. And I think what it is is that I'm more comfortable in moments now of just doing nothing instead before where I notice I naturally gravitate to having to have that activity take up my time. Hmm. Just a, just a thought. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, all of this, it's like finding our way in it, and finding, 
finding how, I mean, there's so much to learn when we turn our attention in towards our own mind. And it's this, it's this whole process of discovery that you're finding that we're experiencing as we notice the lifelong patterns of creativity or habitual actions that we do and begin to notice what's useful and what's no longer useful. So it's an, it's an interesting practice. Someone behind you? This takes bravery. Um, I've had a chronic illness for 14 years. And, I'm sorry. Uh, I've had a chronic illness for 14 years, and I have to rest a few hours in the middle of the day. And I still hate it. <laughs> Do you have any wisdom <laughs> about that? I don't deal with chronic illness myself. My friends who do express very similar reactions to it. Um, I can't believe I have to slow down. It's not fair, or this shouldn't be happening to me, or all of the above. Yeah, yeah. And um, what I get is, you got to do it, or you'll just go way under, right? And so. I think that there's a couple of angles on that. One is looking at how do you, as a practice, look at the difficult mind states that arise around it, the hating it, the aversion, the feeling it's not fair, the, all of that. So that can be a practice in itself. And can there actually be some freedom amidst the mind states? Can you say, oh, I'm hating this, and it's just hating it. Oh, I hate this. Aversion, aversion, lots of aversion. But you're with it. Um, that's one piece. And then the other is all of my friends who I've talked to, and you may experience this yourself, feel like they've learned such a tremendous amount from their illness that it has become this huge teacher for them. And so those periods of having to do what it wants them to do, even though it's not what you want it to, become the teacher. And it's sort of seeing it like that, the illness as teacher. And I can't speak so knowledgeably because I don't have it myself, but those are some thoughts. Thank you very much. Sure. You have to end at nine. Is that at nine, you guys. Okay, we'll take one more. And then. Uh, something that helps me when, um, when I'm restless or trying to meditate, and it's a little bit of a trick that I play on myself, but... Um, um, I say to myself that this moment is just fine. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing I need to do. There's nothing I need to plan for. I can just be here and not do anything, and it really helps a lot. Mm, thank you. So it's 9 o'clock, um, and I'm sure you have to get to the next thing. It's really important, right? <laughs> I wouldn't want to make anyone late. Um, so why don't we just take a minute to sit together and I'll dedicate the merit. So may the merit of our time together, may it penetrate into all things, may it benefit all beings, in all realms, reducing suffering, 
increasing happiness, providing space and relaxation and openness and time. And may all beings come to know their true nature.